James, the rules-based approach goes to literally every aspect of life. It goes to investing and it has benefits there, but even in other aspects of life. I mean, I'm doing something as simple now as I have a simple rule. I will not eat sugar during the week, but I can do whatever I want at the weekend. And that simple rule, you know, just by having that one rule, I don't have to make a decision every single day as to what I'm going to do. Or, okay, I am a runner. Runners run every single day. So it's it's just a rule. I'm going to run every single day because I'm a runner. It takes the decision-making out of the process. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, a modern wealth management firm focused on investing in innovation. The guest on today's episode is Shane Monks O'Byrne, and we really cover some ground during our discussion. We talk about quantitative rules-based investing, meditation, lifestyle design, creating a second brain, and so much more. Shane is the CEO and founder of Aikido Finance, whose mission it is to make quantitative strategies more accessible to investors everywhere. I loved learning about how Shane is running his startup from a camper van, traveling about in Europe, and living his best life. Our discussion is ripe with ideas to live better and invest better. Enjoy. Shane, thank you so much for coming on Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, or in this case, Bulls, Bears, and Guinness. How's it going, James? Nice to be with you. The reason is Guinness, of course, if you can't tell from my accent, is because I'm from that small little island on the west coast of Europe called Ireland. But you're not in Ireland, and and I think that's a good starting point. Why don't you tell me where you are and uh, what you're doing right now? Yeah, so I certainly lead a somewhat interesting existence in that I live full-time in my camper van. I'm currently in the Arctic Circle in northern Norway, uh, running my startup while I do. Uh, so in fact, it was quite difficult to find this Guinness, uh, when James gave me the strict <laughs> instructions to go and buy one, cause I had to find a place that sold alcohol to begin with in Norway, which is actually pretty tricky. Uh, I then had to find the money to be able to purchase it because everything in Norway is so incredibly expensive. Um, but now I finally get to enjoy it and it's, it's super tasty, but I left, um, yes, to pull it back a little bit. Uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I suppose I, uh, I left Ireland, uh, about three months ago at this stage and drove, I took a ferry down to France, drove across uh, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, uh, all on the grand quest of uh, finding the Northern Lights and perhaps some polar bears along the way. And uh, and having a load of fun while I do it. I'm traveling with my girlfriend. And uh, and yeah, as I said, trying to, trying to somehow juggle also uh, running a startup, which takes up a considerable amount of time too. <laughs> it, yes, it does. And you know, me and my wife, I mentioned this to you as we were chatting, uh, we're looking at, at moving uh, to Europe and staying a year or so with our daughter. I don't think my wife will let me go the camper van route, but I may toss that out there a little bit and may, maybe send her your course. I know I know you made a course about actually building the camper van. So um, maybe I'll see if I could swing that. But uh, knowing my wife's tendency to not enjoy camping and being in tight spaces, I'm sure I'll get a hard pass on that. But um, I'll see what I can do. Well, there are are levels there, right? I mean, you could maybe swing the whole RV route, but you might get some people uh, giving you strange looks if you come with a giant RV down some tiny (laughs) little Norwegian road with snow all about the place. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm sitting in my camper right now talking to you and it's it's genuinely a little log cabin, incredibly cozy, despite the fact that uh, last night it got to minus five degrees. Uh, We had the the heater blowing and and it's it's really lovely. Um, but it is a confined space and a, uh, specific taste, perhaps not for everybody. Sure. <laughs> sure. I would imagine not, but I think it's really interesting. And I think it's incredible the amount of freedom, um, that's, you know, largely technology enabled that allows someone like yourself 
to travel about, um, see new things, have new experiences, and you know, run your business and and run a startup, no less that is you know are notoriously time consuming and require a lot of energy. So, why don't you talk a little bit about um, your company and and kind of what you do and how you got into the quant investing world? Yeah, for sure. So sometimes I think that I'm just like this giant walking juxtaposition of a human being whereby I live a pretty hippie lifestyle in the camper van and yet I somehow find myself in one of the most complex domains of like investing which is quantitative finance (laughs) (laughs) Um, but ultimately I am quite a rules-based individual and I enjoy routine and structure and I I think that very much feeds into the style of investing that I do so my company is Aikido Finance and our mission is to democratize quantitative investing. So quantitative investing is a rules-based approach to investing. Um, It essentially uses computers to make your investment decisions. In fact, to make all investment decisions, it completely takes the human out of the equation. It's algorithmic trading. Our specific flavor of it, though, is not high-frequency day trading, um, gambling-like way of investing. It's it's much more long-term focused. So we actually test, uh, we backtest over the last 20 years and really utilize people who have backtested over like up to 100 years or in the case of some crazy research papers, 200 years. Would you believe there's data going back that far? And we really look at what's worked over the long term. But there's been a really big problem in the space of quantitative investing and i suppose that's what we're trying to address obviously over the last decade we've seen a ferocious number of people enter the stock market uh, retail investors right uh, yes definitely amount of people hopping in um which is great you know all in the name of controlling their financial future and taking control of their finances and you know like this you know loving the fact that there's so little fees and you know management fees are being pushed down and you know lots of good things there but a huge amount of it really is uh, gambling especially at this stage of the market cycle a lot of people hopping in are doing it without any structure strategy systems in place right At the same time, this whole area of quantitative investing, which still sounds like pretty scary to a lot of people, is growing really rapidly. Six of the top 10 performing funds in uh, in the US are quant funds, and um, BlackRock estimate the space to grow uh, by 70% in the next 18 months. So there's this huge growth, right? But there's massive barriers to entry to get into it. Uh, Like normally requires a lot of financial knowledge, lots of coding experience, certainly lots of capital if you want to get into a quant fund. Um, it's just like completely inaccessible to most people. So, et voila, that's where <laughs> Aikido Finance comes in. We basically just give these strategies out uh, almost for free. Like most of the stuff on the site is complete for free. We just want to give people access to these quant strategies that, um, you know, that uh, give people the same tools basically that they, these funds use. Um, and yeah, started building it two years ago. Uh, we closed our, our seed funding round there, the million dollar raise in August, uh, just like two months ago, which I'm stoked about because uh, that was a journey itself. Doing that raise, uh, raising a million dollars while living full time in the camper van was, was really interesting. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, well on the road now um, and, and growing the team pretty fast too. Well, first off, congratulations. That's awesome that you're making progress and, and you know, raising the capital to, to grow what you're doing. I think that's incredible. And I, man, I really feel lucky to, to be honest with you, to be living in an era where people have access to information and tools that weren't available to most people not very long ago. And I'm seeing it with what you're doing it. I'm seeing it in a, in a lot of other um, young finance companies that are really focused on doing exactly what you said, and that's providing access. And um, I think that's fantastic for more people to be able to to put the time, have the tools to really think about their future and invest in it and not feel like they're kind of on the outside looking in of this big, scary world of finance. Because I think a lot of people have been intimidated, frankly, especially when you look back to um, what happened in, you know, 08. And, and, you know, that turned a lot of people off, especially younger people um, from what the finance world is. Um, but you did bring up a good point, And I think this is really important. And I've seen this way too often. Um, and, and it's an easy trap to fall into. There's a difference between investing and entertainment or gambling. And, you know, I really caution my clients or my friends, anyone I talk to, just, you need to understand the difference. Um, 
getting into things because they're hyped up or you're seeing them online or reading about them in the news or your Uber driver told you uh, he's got a great stock tip for you. You know, that that's not investing. That's either entertainment or gambling or, or some uh, very risky combination of both. So I think that's really um, fantastic that you're bringing strategies um, that kind of really were, were held for high net worth individuals or institutions. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you, what brought you to quant investing? Um, was it the technology side of things? Like where did you come from personally to kind of end up in that, um, in that side, as opposed to some other investment strategy? Yeah. So I think lots of people have interesting journeys in, in their investing experience is certainly very tight. I, I think we've noticed to people's ego as well. Like people really put it as part of their personality and like the flavor of investing that they do, they really believe in and, you know, you'd be hard put swaying them. Um, I've done just about every form of it along the way. I'm still a young guy, but I started pretty, pretty early at the age of 17 um, and jumped in a pretty uh, not great side of uh, <laughs> of investing, which was immediately into sort of Forex trading. Um, and it quickly did pretty poorly in that actually, which was, you know, that's a really great lesson to learn early on is actually probably fail fast. Just like with a startup, you want to fail fast and, and, and learn quickly. Uh, it's the same thing in investing. And, you know, that's kind of one of the problems with people hopping in now and doing so phenomenally well is that there's this false expectation that they're going to be achieving that, um, you know, in, into the future, which uh, uh, is not going to be the case indefinitely. Um, so ultimately, after, after having that uh, learning experience, I just educated myself yourself endlessly uh through the endless array of uh, material that's available online youtube videos and a lot of books predominantly books in fact uh, just read 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 and quickly found my way into the sort of the land of value investing uh deep value investing and then eventually just to the whole realm of fundamental investing the whole process though of being a fundamental investor of which i was you know for for years and years that was the way of investing that i did was that it would take me ages days and days and days to research individual companies uh, you know hopping on you know earnings calls listening to the analysts um you know reading through all the financial statements doing all the due diligence of course not only does it take a lot of time, but it's also ripe with biases there as well. It's like, oh, I've, you know, a sunk, sunk cost fallacy. You know, I've spent so much time researching this. It's like, it's got to be worth it, right? And there's plenty of stats out there just to really show just how hard stock picking is. To hit you with one before I get on to how I became a quant investor, there's a research firm called uh, CXO, and they tracked the prediction of, uh, they, they tracked 6,582 predictions of 68 investing gurus. So these were household names, right? Over a 20-year period. And over that 20-year period, what they found was that the average accuracy of the gurus' predictions was uh, 47%. So hmm. worse than a coin toss, right? And those are the professionals trying to pick stocks. So it's a very, very hard thing to do. Um, and of course, being a computer scientist uh, and, and a programmer, I then started to think, okay, well, how can I utilize a rules-based approach here and, uh, and start using data more to my advantage to speed up time, reduce stress, improve performance, decrease risk, all these kind of things. Came across a few really interesting books. And one book in particular I consider to be the absolute Bible of investing, truly, is called What Works on Wall Street by James O'Shaughnessy. Yeah, uh, great book. Yeah, man. I'm glad you've read it. There's funnily enough, you know, not enough people have. It seems like it was this, you know, it was a bestseller back in the late nineties, and then it's like not enough people know this book. Um Yeah, he's a great Twitter follow too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He actually also uh Shaughnessy Ashton Management, they just put out a new white paper today on um I got approached by a VC actually, a venture capitalist, just like a couple of days ago. It's like, hey, we're looking for uh a startup that's gonna help us combat uh um inflation like mega inflation right which is obviously right. a, a scary thing and, and a prospect at the moment um o'shaughnessy's white paper that they brought today was how to combat inflation uh through quantitative investing or factor investing what they found the three most this is a bit of an aside but the three most powerful metrics to look at if you are going to be in equities in stocks are shareholder yield momentum and value those three mm -hmm. tend to perform best during inflationary periods okay. anyway interesting I came across this book, right? What O'Shaughnessy does in the book is he backtests, in some cases, all the way to 1926. Uh, some of those metrics are around all the way back then. Uh, individual investing metrics, like how does price to earnings correlate to returns over the last 100 years? 
starting off simple and then eventually putting these factors together. And the results are really astounding. Like you're looking at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20% return per year, like really crazy stuff. And so crazy that going back, I suppose this is four years ago now, um, I was a skeptic, right? I, I was like, whoa, these are too, way too good to be true. Um, so I started building my own backtester. I called the project Doubting Thomas, uh, aptly named, and basically uh, coded together this, uh, along with my now co-founder, Connor, this was a very long time ago, um, this backtest, and we started testing the strategies that O'Shaughnessy outlined in the book. And we're amazed when we started seeing the results firsthand. It's like, wow, holy, holy crap, this actually works. We're seeing this stuff that's written in the book. So we got super excited. Um, I released a mobile app. This is several years ago now called Investing Checklist. Did actually really well. I only retired it there at the start of this year because Aikido just became in my main baby and I sort of couldn't keep up the code base of the last one. What Investing Checklist was, was just this quantitative checklist that people could uh, basically check if a stock met these criteria. Re- could be like super simple. Price to earnings must be less than 15. Price to sales must be less than 1.5. Price to book must be less than whatever, 0.8 or, you know, these these kind of things. And those are just the value ones. Of course, there's all sorts of other factors in there. Uh, you've got, sure. you know, health, quality, uh, management, all these kind of things. So you could search any publicly traded company. But um, I suppose about two and a half years ago, myself and, uh, and Connor, we, we went to a talk by Y Combinator, which is a giant US accelerator, uh, of course, based in, in the Valley. And, um, and they were giving a talk in, in Dublin, Ireland, and we were super inspired uh, after we went to that talk. Um, I mean, we just sat down and we're just like, we've got to start a business. We left the talk. <laughs> it was like late evening. We went across the road. We sat down in the nearest diner. And for the next, uh, which is very rare, we don't have too many diners in Ireland, but this was one that just happened. To be across <laughs> the street. And we sat down for about six hours and we completely put down the idea for Aikido, which was, you know, essentially answering this question of how can we get these quantitative tooling, which really are so abstract for most people and get them to everybody in a super simple, elegant, beautiful way. And it's been an adventure since then. So I suppose that was, that was my journey to, to becoming a quant. That's incredible. And I, I want to touch on one thing, and I think this is one of the things I like most about quant strategies, especially long-term, you know, like you said, not talking about high-frequency stuff, just talking about some longer-term rules-based investing. And it really comes down to me, investor behavior. And, you know, as a financial advisor and and an asset manager, that's one of the hardest things that I deal with is so much of what makes somebody successful in investing is counter to human nature. I mean, we're we're just born with these tools, these evolutionary tools to help us avoid pain, um, but they don't work when it comes to investing. In fact, it runs counter to the behaviors that will help someone be a good investor. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a really valuable piece of quant investing, especially for someone who just, they have a very hard time over and over again. They catch themselves doing the exact wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, They're the person who, when the market is running hot, they get excited and start putting more money in. And then when everything goes to shit, they start selling everything when that's when they should have been buying. You know, that's where I think quant can be really powerful for people who just have a hard time self-implementing rules and allowing a computer to do it for them, I think can be very valuable in helping them increase their returns over time. James, the rules-based approach goes to literally every aspect of life. It goes to investing and it has benefits there. But even in other aspects of life, I mean, I'm doing something as simple now as I have a simple rule. I will not eat sugar during the week, but I can do whatever I want at the weekend. And that simple rule, you know, just by having that one rule, I don't have to make a decision every single day as to what I'm going to do. Or, okay, I am a runner. Runners run every single day. So it's it's just a rule. I'm going to run every single day because I'm a runner. It takes the decision making out of the process. I mean, back when Obama was in office, he made Michelle choose out his suit and his tie every single day. So he didn't have to make that decision. We can only make a certain number of decisions each day. And we just like wear ourselves down and we become more and more tired. Right. Um, but certainly in investing, it's the most potent and most powerful. And there's layers here to even, you know, how, you know, anybody can 
implement some form of a quantitative approach to their investing. The very simplest form that anybody can do is just a simple dollar cost average is I am going to put aside $200 every month and I'm going to invest it into X, Y, or Z. I mean, that's like the simplest way that anybody can do it. And I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to try and sell or try to time the market or do anything like that. And even if you just did that simple approach, we all know the power of even just doing that into the S&P 500 uh, or into, you know, some sort of a fund. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really powerful. Um, and, you know, that's the basic level of, of quant there. And obviously it goes up and up and up. But as I said, not only does it help improve returns, which it does, and reduce risk, which it does, it's also just great for your mind because it really just de-stresses you, allows you to not have to make decisions. You're outsourcing your thinking to <laughs> a system. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm obviously a big believer for sure. Well, I'm really fascinated with what you're doing, not just on the investing side. And I want to shift gears a little bit because I don't know, I probably consider myself a bit of a futurist um, in the sense that I really love thinking about the future and all of the possibilities um, from just the human um, innovation side and thinking about technology and how the world might change. I know I'm going to be wrong, right? There's no way to predict what the world's going to look like um, very far out in the future at all. But I still get a lot of pleasure in thinking about what's happening today and how those things might evolve uh, into the future and change how we live. And I'm really fascinated going back to where you're at in the world, how you're running your business and and all of those things from a little technology hub you have in a camper van um, there. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. You talk, um, and and I've listened to you on some other things, and I've read some of the some of the you know things that have highlighted how you do things. What is a day like for you, Shane? Like, if is there a typical day, and and what would that day be like as someone who's who's doing what you're doing right now? So you have to make sure there's such thing as a typical day when every day is so f- phenomenally different. Because while it's a very fun existence, you have to have structure in your life and keep up some sort of a routine. Uh, so yes, and a day in my life is, is it's certainly really interesting. Um, getting harder uh, as we head further north and it gets closer to winter because the sun now is only rising at about nine o'clock in the morning, um, which is really pretty late. Um, but how it would usually look is the alarm would chime off at about seven o'clock or seven thirty in the morning, uh, tending towards the seven thirty mark at this stage. <laughs> uh, I'd uh, I'd get up, make myself a a cup of coffee, uh, very very importantly, uh, read the coffee, get the running shoes on, and hop out for a run. Um, come back, and I uh, I tend to fast uh, all morning long until until lunchtime. Um, this has been a more recent thing for me after reading a book called Lifespan by David Sinclair, um, where he basically is a, a leading expert, the leading expert worldwide on longevity and how to live longer. And turns out the caloric restriction is one of the very actionable things that we can do to increase our lifespan. Um, so that's just one way that I try to do it. Um, work starts at about at 10 a.m., uh, which is great because I'm an hour ahead. The company actually starts on Irish time at about 9, 9 a.m. Um, but before, <laughs> uh, before work starts, I like to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of meditation in and, and some journaling. Um, I try to keep my, like my morning voice, as I call it, pretty quiet because uh, the day is, is a lot of things going on um, and many tasks normally. So I just try and keep my brain quiet until work starts. Um, normally, we start with stand-up, uh, which is where we get the whole team together. Um, and everybody says what they did yesterday, what they're working on today, if they need help from anybody else. It's also just a nice way to catch up with the team. Everybody on the team is completely remote and working from very, very interesting places around the world. We've got some guys in, uh, in Italy, Austria, uh, Spain, and then apparently the Arctic Circle, um, which is me. And then I, uh, I tend to work pretty tough and pretty hard. Um, I batch my... my my days have different themes, I call them. So Wednesdays is my meeting with people outside of Aikido day. So all my external meetings, I only do them on Wednesday. So I'm not context switching on other days of the week. And I book all those in with, uh, with Calendly. Mondays are all my internal meetings. I only have internal meetings with the guys on Mondays. And then Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday are deep work days, uh, where I'll do nothing but concentrate on very large specific tasks. 
Um, lunchtime, I do try and get out uh, for a bit of way, like a bit of air on my face and some more exercise. And work tends to wind down around 6 p.m. When again, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get out and, uh, and get a bit more exercise as well, if possible, um, and squeeze lunch in there somewhere as well. Um, afterwards, I have just for the last week been staying in the Arctic, what's it called? The Arctic Coworking Lodge, uh, which is the most northerly co-work in the world. And it was particularly pleasurable here because I got to actually have friends for a week uh, and not be <laughs> constantly traveling around the place. Um, so it was nice to enjoy uh, some fun activities. We had a super hot Finnish sauna there yesterday, uh, which was like a 95 degree sauna. So I got into that after work and then jumped in. Uh, the cold seas afterwards. I think I did two sea plunges and then uh, then bathed myself in the sauna, and um, and finally wound down into bed probably around like nine thirty, ten o'clock, something like that, to read my Kindle before sleeping off. Oh, and then if I'm lucky, see the aurora borealis, uh, but only if I'm lucky because the weather's quite terrible here a lot of the time. Okay, so many questions. I, I that's one of the more interesting schedules I've ever heard. And I will tell you, I've this whole grind culture that kind of I don't know, it's kind of presented itself over the last I don't know, 10 years. I mean, I'm sure there have been variations of it going all the way back to the beginning of man, but um it it it, it used to really nauseate me in certain ways because I'm just thinking to myself like you guys are so full of shit, you know. Get up at 4.30 in the morning, journal for a half hour, you know, all of these things. I will say I'm coming around ever so slightly. And trust me, I'm never going to wake up at 4.30 ever again. I did that when I was in the Air Force and I'm done with that game. Um, I'm, I'm more like you. I get up around 6.30 or 7. Um, but I've come around on a lot of these things that I used to think were maybe wastes of time or, you know, just didn't add value to a day. And meditation is is one of them. So I started meditating about seven months ago, six or seven months ago. And I was, even when I was doing it at the very beginning, I was very just reluctant and had so many doubts in my head about, you know, I feel like I'm just wasting time. Um, but like I said, I've really come around and I've found it to be incredibly valuable to have some time to sit quietly and really just try to turn the mind off and let it do its thing, or at least take away, strip away my control over it um, and, and let it go where it wants to go. And there are a lot of kind of different views on, on meditations and different styles and, and um, practices. How do you view meditation? How does that fit in? And what's your objective uh, with meditation? I love that you've you've tended towards meditation here because it's it's one of the single most important things in my life that keeps me grounded. Like I can't over overemphasize really like how um, many moving parts there are in my life. Uh, like there is a lot going on, and and and. I've been I, just about when I started uh, investing at the age of 17 is when I started meditating quite how I found it. I really don't know, but I've been doing it for a very long time. Um, and at this stage, it'd be probably an hour a day. And that's, you know, any amount wow. a day is great. But I, I just I suppose I take it uh, a little bit to the two extremes. And for me, I heard a great description of what meditation is the other day, because it's very hard to describe what it is. And it's this wonderful old guy from the UK called John Butler. You can check him out on YouTube. He uh, he got famous a little bit a while ago for having a very ASMR voice. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has a beautiful, beautiful speaking voice. But he's um, very spiritual as well, uh, specifically in the realms of mindfulness. And what he described mindfulness and meditation as is think of it like you have you are opening up the aperture of what you can kind of take into your experience. And the more you allow yourself to take in, the more you will experience. So most people, he calls them bananas. They go around with, you know, leaned over, crouched over, their heads pointing at the ground, not really thinking or taking anything in. And somebody who's more awake and uh, more open to taking things in and more mindful just has increased the aperture uh, and, and sort of the diameter of what, what they can kind of take in. Um, and, the goal of it, I suppose, is 
though I think we should probably disassociate ourselves from goals in terms of meditation, but is really just to I agree, I agree. Experience, experience more from life and really be very uh, grateful, I think. And obviously a nice byproduct of it uh, is, is the calmness uh, that it brings and being able to deal with stress. And one noteworthy thing that everybody who meditates says after a while is that there's this pause that you get between stimulus and reaction. Stimulus happens that before you might have just like triggered you, you know, you might have got that anxiety um, bout or you might have just got angry really all of a sudden. Whereas now there's just this slight moment where it's like, whoop, hang on there. Is that the right reaction to have? And I think that's one of the very notable um, benefits of it. But I mean, I have written whole blogs and, and articles on on mindful investing and and how we can even incorporate mindfulness into our investing uh, it was one of my favorite pieces that i wrote that would have been oh, probably a year ago i wrote that piece um and just how we using mindful techniques can actually help increase stock market returns and it actually does come back a little bit to that rules-based approach and you know one of them is you know not being reactive right uh, is one very obvious parallel um between it um, but there are a few I can't quite recall off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, certainly it's 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 super important to me. Uh, and and to be honest, everybody on the team as well. I th- th- we're all at the start. We called it two years ago the mindful startup. I wanted we wanted to try coin that little phrase, but <laughs> I'm not sure it's caught on. I love that, and I'll share a little benefit that I've noticed in my you know, like I said, six or seven months, and I'm nowhere near an hour. I'm about fifteen minutes a day or so. So much shorter period of time as far as how long I meditate um, during each session. But one benefit I think um, that's been very important and noteworthy has been just more optimism, just very broadly, more optimistic. I don't focus as much on negative events, negative um, things. I even see things that maybe I previously would have thought as negative as not negative at all, or just kind of indifferent about them. So, and I think that ties back into what you maybe saw with the investing, you know, optimistic people tend to be better investors. I've actually written about that as well. Um, and I, I think maybe that plays a role there because you're, you don't get so worried and fearful every time some event in the world happens that is totally out of your control and you're probably more likely to overestimate um, how it's going to impact your life and your finances. So that's been one thing. And and being optimistic, I mean, you know, what a gift that is to to be able to 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 stay positive um, more often. Um, certainly, we all you know get a little ruffled at times, but but that's been one benefit that I think's been important to me. A hundred percent, James. You know, just as a it's a definitely an aside from mindfulness, but just in relation to optimism, it's it's kind of related there and how that relates to the stock market. Um, saw a research paper there the other day, which amused me, uh, which was the relationship between testosterone and results in the stock market. How they measured, uh, the most obvious measure of testosterone is uh, how wide your jaw is. Uh, if you have like a really square jaw, you have super high testosterone and, and like it kind of is like, it's quite correlated. And uh, what they found was like <laughs> individuals who had crazy high testosterone performed uh, more poorly, uh, but so did the people who had crazy low testosterone and for the exact mm-hmm. opposite reasons, willingness to hop in and then the lack of willingness to hop in. So it actually turns out that just being about average is is probably the best. But when it turns to optimism, I'm a big believer, just be as happy as you can be. And and it is, it's a, it's a mind shift shift and it's, and it's, that's tough, you know. A lot, like a lot of people will come back at that and 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 think that it's not really a choice. But I am a big believer that that really, like happiness, it, it is a choice uh, to to quite a large degree. Of course, people, some people are predispositioned to you know through through chemicals and and all sorts of other reasons um, to be at a disadvantage. But you know, if, for me, there is like a prescription. Uh, that you can almost give uh, rather than giving you know the doctor giving you a prescription for a pill it's like okay well let's check off these other things first you know are you getting you know enough nature and enough exercise how's your diet doing how's your sleep doing are you sleeping eight hours a night because you should probably be doing that are you seeing people socializing is a hugely important part of of happiness um and those are the four kind of key ones after that you've got love have you got 
like a loving relationship either with your family or you know with your with your your significant other there someone to support you and what I've added on there recently was actually, and I, I was kind of trying to figure out if it fits into this equation for happiness, if we can even call it that, but is this idea of peace and, and, and that one word peace is like, there's not much I kind of want in life other than just peace. And that peace is really just being at peace with myself that I know that I can be happy if I'm just on my own to my own thoughts. And, you know, that I'm, I'm kind of confident in myself. And really once you have, you know, that confidence in, in yourself and you feel really at peace with yourself and you really understand yourself, which for me has come from lots of journaling and, you know, lots of meditation and lots of just thinking, it really leads on to and opens up the doors for a wide range of, of other benefits there. Um, just, you know, that, that peacefulness and being knowing yourself truly um, helps improve all sorts of other aspects of your life and makes it all the rosier. So, so much there. I agree with you on so many of these, on these points and I, I'm trying to do better and, and realize some of my faults myself. There was a, I had William Green on the show recently who wrote the book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. And he's a phenomenal writer. He's a phenomenal person, very kind. Um, and I really loved our conversation. And there was a part in uh, his book where, um, and I forget who said it, but it, it's very simple. There are four things we know help, you know, brain health and happiness, sleep, a healthy diet, exercise and meditation. Those were the four listed. Um, and when I look around and you hear so many people who, um, of course you never know what's going on inside, but they seem to really have their stuff together. They seem to be doing things they love. Those come up over and over again. Yet so many of us, um, myself included, um, in, in certain ways, don't really focus on those four things. Instead, we overcomplicate and try to go do other things or hope that, um, you know, some medication, as you mentioned, you know, might help us, or, you know, we come up with some incredibly complex workout system instead of just making an effort to be more active and go on walks and maybe find a hobby that we find enjoyable in addition to being good for us. So James, you all touched of these on, things, they're, they're so interconnected. You touched on really interesting thing there. And I think that's with simplicity and our, our want to make things more complex. And and, and it's a really interesting concept because I really believe in just keep it simple wherever possible. I mean, for me, when I moved into, the, you know, did the whole van thing like two years ago, I uh, created it, moved into it. And with it became like really a hyper minimalist. I mean, to the extent where it's like five t-shirts, five uh, pairs of boxers, you know, a bit more socks. <laughs> and, and that's really <laughs> it because like when you, when you remove as many things as you can from your life and really think that it's like, what can I remove? Not what can I add? And when you simplify further, it's just less things for your brain to think about. It's the same with my investing, right? It's like, how can I simplify this for myself? So I have less stress. It's like, okay, let's just put some rules in place there. And so I really do like when anybody is adding something to their life, just to be very conscious anytime they're adding that. Naval Ravikant talks about it as games. There are only a certain number of games that we can play, either single player or multiplayer games, but we can only play a certain number. And the more we add, the more we tend to get pretty stressed out, especially with multiplayer games. Multiplayer games are the likes of social media. Uh, they, of course, are also interacting with you know friends. Uh, they are your your side hustles and your business that you got going on these are all multiplayer games that take a lot of brain power and we should just be really conscious whenever we're adding these these you know these games or this extra complexity to life because it's you know the way i think about it and i've been doing a lot of thinking about this whole world of desire in uh, i suppose in buddhist in eastern like buddhist philosophy uh, desire is one of these things that it's kind of like a contract with yourself to be unhappy. It's like, until I have X, I'm not going to be happy. And if, it's one part of Buddhism that I always really struggled with. I'm not a Buddhist, by the way. Um, but it's, it's one part of Buddhism that I really struggled with. It's like, how can we not have desire? Like, I want to start this startup. I want to be successful. I want to, you know, sell it for however much. And I want to do X, Y, you know, all these things. And it's really tricky. Because what I've come to realize is that truly the more desires that we have, the less happy we become. But we do need to have some, and we certainly need to have meaning in our life. Um, 
we definitely need to have some purpose that we're working towards, right? Um, so we just need to be very mindful of what desires we add in. And a great way to think about whenever you're adding a desire into your life or a game into your life, think, is it natural? Um, providing for your family, that's a very natural game to want to play. Or I want to work hard as a farmer, say, this summer, so I can have a good uh, you know, harvest so that I can get through next winter. And I suppose that's obviously down on the lowest level. But, you know, like working a job and, and really wanting to succeed in that job is natural to a certain level because you are obviously the want and the very reasonable want is to achieve financial independence. Um, you know, that's a very reasonable want. But it's just being very conscious. Anytime we think we have a desire, um, how natural is it? And be very conscious anytime you're adding it. That's interesting. The desire, um, you know, I, I, I think that's fascinating to think about. I guess I would, you know, I'm sitting here thinking as I, as I, as I go, um, I think we have to separate internal desire from external, right? Like what do you really want? Um, or what is it that you've been taught to want or been, um, told to want or, or, you know, told that this is normal as opposed to this. And, you know, Naval, I love Naval. I think he's, um, incredibly bright and very well spoken and portraying some of his ideas talks a lot about, you know, education and how our education system um, is flawed in so many ways. And one of the things he talks about is not teaching happiness. Um, we don't teach people. Um, we don't teach kids what it, what happiness is, how to be happy. Um, so what ends up happening is all of these other influences kind of teach them advertisements, teach them, um, their peers teach them all of these, um, outside influences. So I think desire is, uh, I would agree. It's perfectly natural to desire things. I think that's just an inherent part of being, but separating true desire, um, from external, you know, fake desire is really the key. And I've focused a lot personally on that in the last probably two years of trying to determine, okay, what, what am I doing? That's, I say I'm doing it because I like it or it makes me happy, but deep down it has no impact or probably even worse. Mm. It's a negative impact because I'm wasting my time, my money, my energy, um, on these things that, uh, frankly are meaningless, um, and reallocating that time and that energy to things that, um, will have more impact to me personally, um, and probably those around me by, by means of me being happier and more productive and more open to new ideas and things like that. So it's all, you know, I, th I think the theme from our conversation so far is so many of these things are interconnected and going back to, to happiness and contentness um, and optimistic and being optimistic, um, you do have a choice um, and, you, and you get to choose how you want to view things and negative events are, are going to happen and they're going to sting um, but we overestimate the the feeling, the negative feeling about things, so we avoid things that we probably shouldn't. Um, but yeah, these all of these concepts are so so interesting to me, and and thinking about how to become a better, more effective, um, and more helpful person. Hundred percent. Naval, incidentally, was the guy who got me thinking about you know this <laughs> idea that happiness is a choice one thing that he struggles with when he talks with people is uh, the nihilistically inclined person uh you know let's say there is especially if they're an atheist uh in that and this is actually specifically relevant because i just finished reading a short history of nearly everything by bill bryson and the one message that's really drilled home is that guys don't know if there's any other earths out there i mean maybe according to some equations there should be other living species but like we are pretty damn unique as humans truly i mean a series of very 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 specific fortunate events have to have happened for us is that sapiens uh so sapiens that... was uh, Naval, uh, yuval noah harari uh this is bill, okay. bill bryson okay. uh sapiens okay. is also an excellent book but that can be a daunting thought if you think about it in one respect in that you know geez we're you know 13.8 billion years the the universe is and we're basically alone this tiny little insignificant dot in the corner of the the milky way and you know like what is the point in everything but you can 
twist that on its head and think, well, what an amazing thing. It's like, we just so happen to be here. And it's like, well, okay, maybe there's not like a whole meaning to why we're here. So why not just make the absolute most of it? And why, if you're only here for this tiny blip of existence, why spend it being dreadfully unhappy? Just, just try and be a little bit more, a little bit more rosy, you know, because truly it's an absolute miracle that you're here. Uh, so Naval talked about that. I, I found it particularly inspiring uh, and got me thinking certainly about that, that whole, that whole route. Yeah, I, I, I think he's incredible as well. And um, I've been thinking more about a lot of the same things. And uh, I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk more, um, maybe less about thought and, and, and those kind of deeper things and more about actual practical um, things. And, and um, I read you use Notion and kind of use Notion as a, as a second brain tool. Um, I also started using Notion uh, about a year ago. I'm, I'm still very early in the learning curve. Um, I have set it up um, for several of my businesses to um, kind of do some tasks there. And, and then for some personal things where I keep, you know, reading lists and, and things like that, but certainly have not unlocked anywhere near the full power of Notion as a tool. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what a second brain is and what Notion is for, for those who maybe don't know about Notion or what it is? Yes. Wow. What interesting stuff we've gotten onto here now, James. This is even, <laughs> this is even more interesting than meditation. Um, so, okay. So first of all, um, let's start with what is a second brain. Um, so the human brain is an amazing computer. Um, it takes about 12 watts of energy to run our brains and f- we still haven't built a computer that can do anywhere near what the human brain can do, except for some math sums. But uh, what it's not very good at is holding a lot of information infinitely into the future and and reminding of you of it just when you need it. And if you do try to do that, you're going to get really, really tired, especially as a founder, as an entrepreneur, and as a, as, a, as a very busy person when there might be, you know, 50 thoughts that come to you throughout the day of things that need to be done. Uh, it could be as something as simple as uh, feed my cat this evening to, oh my God, I've just had the best business idea in the entire world. I need to write it down. Uh, to, oh, I've just heard a really interesting quote to this stat that I've just learned from Bill Bryson to an infinite number of these things. Um, But, you know, very frequently they come to us and we just let them go. We just let them slide and and they're gone into the ethersphere forevermore. The second brain solves that problem. Essentially, anything that ever comes to you that's of value and could potentially be used in the future should go into your second brain. That's what the computer is really good at. It's really good at being a hard drive and filing away logically information. We're all, especially if you're listening to this podcast, likely driven, motivated people who have lots of ideas and things you might want to work on in the future. I suppose side hustly type people, although I am also against hustle culture, that's different. <laughs> but, yes, um, I totally agree. But but side hustles are very exciting and we don't want to let these ideas go. And we certainly know that even if it's a piece of content we're writing, that we want to be able to get quotes that are really interesting and really relevant. And that something you might have read three years ago that could be relevant to it. So this all this stuff goes into our second brain and how I personally collect all this information. So for example, every book that I read I tend to churn through them very, very frequently, I write a little book summary of, right? And pop it into my second brain. Very, very simple. I try to make this really low impact and, you know, as easy to do as possible and a little resistance. And how I do that is by using Notion. So Notion is an awesome tool. It's, I mean, even a year ago, James is still like, that was early in its life. I've probably only been using it probably, you know, like a year and a half max, I would say, maybe two years. Um, But it's a relatively new company, but it's essentially an all-in-one workspace. Um, It's pretty creative. Uh, Think of it like a note-taking tool with a whole load more functionality. The ability to put in like timelines or drop images in really nicely. Um, The ability to use like a a to-do list or a scrum board, uh, which is like to-do, doing, done, moving tasks across. Basically lots of functionality in a very easy to use, super elegant, super beautiful, super simple piece of software. And it's completely free. So I have it on my phone and I have it set up on my computer. And how I have it set up specifically is uh, using a system called Getting Things Done, uh, the GTD. I have set up. So this book, Getting Things Done, was originally written by David Allen, uh, who was a super uh, famous for this book, a guy who used to help back in the 80s and 90s um, CEOs with their filing. 
uh, and I mean like old school filing, uh, like with filing cabinets. So what he would do, uh, and these were, you know, CEOs with the exact same problem that we have, and you know, massive information. How do I deal with all this this stuff going on? And how do I get historical documents? How do I be reminded of things just in time when I need it? So what David Allen would do is he'd meet up with these guys. Uh, he'd go, uh, you know, he'd tell them, okay, don't book any meetings today. You're just going to have a day with me. You're going to grab every single file you have and you're going to get it right here. You're going to get anything that you, you you need to do. And like, even in your own personal life, it doesn't just have to be work. And you're going to put it here and you're going to write down on these pieces of paper and everything that ever needs to be done. Then he even gets it to like, think about future goals. What do you want? Like every single thing that you ever need to think about, let's get it all into this one room and let's do it today or this week and essentially he files all that stuff away into projects or areas so everything to do with uh his business he'll put into his business file everything to do uh with uh creativity he then maybe has subfold sub files inside of that to do with writing to do with video let's say if it was nowadays to do with podcasts there would be sub areas within his overall area of creative um there would maybe be a side hustles uh, like area uh, there would maybe be xyz right but essentially any of these thoughts that come throughout the day they go into your inbox tray right so this is a simple just little uh, uh you know you can create a notion a little table and you put any of these stuff that comes throughout the day into your inbox they don't get addressed straight away. And this is the key problem that so many people have is they get distracted by whatever comes to their attention at any given moment. A phone call comes in and suddenly that's the most important thing to do or an email comes in even worse. And that's suddenly overtaken from this thing that before was the most important thing. And that, Guilty. Oh man, it's, it's so hard. And this is what the GTD system solves really elegantly is that anything that happens throughout the day, if an email comes in that needs to be addressed or a thought comes in, it goes into GTD and you don't look at it until the evening time. And you keep working on the things that you've actually assigned yourself for the day to work on. I then give myself, I call this evening cleaning. I have some takes on GTD system, but the evening cleaning is this uh, one hour period where I will go over everything that's gone into my inbox throughout the day. So all these thoughts or emails or discussions that I need to have with people or notes that I've had with investors or whatever, I'll then review it and then do one of normally three things. Trash it if it's useless. Um, if it takes, they, he calls it the two minute rule, David Allen does. Uh, if it takes two minutes or less, do it on the spot uh, or file it away. Uh, so if it's a useful quote or a useful insight from a book, file it away into your second brain, into that area that's appropriate, right? So that you're going to know where to find it in the future. The last thing, there is actually a fourth thing that could be happening, uh, which is that it's something that you need to schedule um, at some point in the future um, or is reliant on someone else. And so in that case, you can just stick a little due date on it. And again, you can do that in Notion and it's just going to pop up on the day to remind you to do that. So there's really, ultimately, it's pretty hard to go into too much details over a podcast, but uh, the GTD system mixed with the second brain, they're two slightly different concepts, is an absolute productivity and project management game changer. Uh, there's, you could like even watch a little 15 minute YouTube video and it will change your professional life, the GTD and, uh, and, and the second brain, super powerful. Yeah. And, and for anyone who hasn't used Notion before, I would give it a shot. I will say it's a little finicky at first because it's so powerful, but also so bare. Like when you first kind of download Notion and open it up, like it's literally nothing. It's just a shell for you to kind of start building. But there are so many things. I use it very frequently for templates. So if I have a meeting with a client, instead of starting a new note every time, it's already got a format for me. Here are the questions we need to cover. Um, I've even got forms that are embedded that I send to the client ahead of time. The client can then fill out the form. The results from that go into Notion. So now I can see they, oh, they changed jobs um, since last time we talked. Um, we need to talk about that and figure out what impact that may have on their investment strategy, if any at all. But it kind of prompts me. So it's a really, really powerful kind of platform for you to build whatever will work within your kind of thought process. And that's what I think it can do really well is provide an ability to structure something the way you think. And that's what I always struggled with was there were all these tools, but you're trying to like now think differently to use the tool where here you can build the tool to um, kind of match 
how your mind might might work and handle the day-to-day um you know tasks and massive information dumps we get never thought of it that way james hey you'd be a good notion salesman i love that way of like <laughs> not having to think the way the tool thinks but just making the tool think the way you do that's exactly what notion does for sure well good stuff well i've got a couple questions that i ask um every guest and by the way i think this has been delightful i've really enjoyed um, everything from the investing stuff to kind of the deeper kind of life um, journeys that we, that we roads, we went down there um, throughout the discussion, but there are a couple questions I like to ask every guest and we've touched on probably um, at least the first one for sure. But um, that question is what does wealth mean to you, Shane? So wealth to me is everything thing in your life that money can't buy so it's having all those things that take time and dedication and thoughtfulness to obtain and so those are good friends some of them can be outside your control like having a really good secure family that can be part of that wealth equation happiness can certainly be inside of the the circle of wealth and a good body in which to use and a lifestyle that ultimately is the one that you very purposefully have chosen and are living. And I think ultimately that is the most important part of wealth is that ability to have designed your own life. And we're in a very unique position in 2021 to really where it's it's more obtainable than ever to be able to design the life the way you want to do it and don't think as james said earlier on you know we have all this external pressure that things need to be one way like i'm literally in the arc circle running a startup i don't know why it's lunacy but like why not you know like these structures that you think society has put up for you are, are not the case and it can be baby steps to try something new, um, but really think through what's important to you and uh, and design your life purposefully. I do, before we move on to kind of the last question, I did actually want to ask you and have a discussion a little bit more about lifestyle design. And you, you mentioned it there. It's so much more readily available um, because I think we're living largely in an era of abundance. Mm-hmm. To where most people, um, unfortunately, not everyone, but most people don't have to try to figure out where their next meal is coming from or worry about surviving through the night. Um, that's provided the human mind um, new opportunities and the human experience new opportunities. And I think we are in a unique position. There's this crossroads of abundance and technology that allow us to really consider and build or attempt to build the life that we think will make us happy. And like you said, it doesn't have to be something outlandish or so far off. For some people, it will be. Um, For others, it it might be something very simple. Um, It doesn't need to be, you know, it might be um, having a a massive garden at their house um, to provide, you know, a good chunk of their family's food instead of buying it and going out to to eat all the time. That might be one step in, in that direction for, for someone, for someone else, it might just be the freedom to, when they see a destination that looks incredible to tell their family, Hey, we have the means to pack up and go, let's go for a month and do that. Um, so there's, there's no, you know, there's this whole spectrum of, of what that could be. And there's no set, set rules. Um, but I am fascinated by the fact that largely we have geographic freedom um, I mean, we're talking from thousands of miles apart and uh, sharing a, a nice frothy Guinness together. <laughs> um, you, you know, so you have geographic freedom and you, you know, most people have at least, um, at least in the first world, have the means to make decisions that aren't life or death to kind of impact their own being. And I think that's such a unique time in human history. And that makes me very grateful to be living in an era where I can go home and I can read. And because the only reason I can do that is because I know there's a meal in the, in the refrigerator waiting for me and my wife and my baby. So they have a um, word for it here in, in Norway, James, for 
being really, really cozy and at home. And I think that's allowed because we have the ability to like, we know we have food on the plate and we know we have central heating to keep us warm. And the word is kosalik, uh, which just literally means cozy, but it's a really big term over here because it's so cold a lot of the time. They really try to, to get cozy and, um, you know, that's it's only allowed really in this day and age. And you brought up the term age of abundance earlier on, and I've used that specific phrase a lot. Um, and I and I and I, I love that you brought that up um, because it's it really is now everything is a choice, uh, or so much of our our life is a choice. Part I suppose of my uh, lifestyle design is. Uh, is this idea of uh, fire that I'm going for, which is financial independence, retire early. But I have a very specific take on it, which is extreme fire, um, kind of a, a, a novel kind of way of thinking about it. Um, and there's three sides of that coin. There's extreme savings, extreme earnings, and extreme lifestyle. It's like a triangle, right? This extreme savings is just I mean, I don't pay rent for obvious reasons and, uh, and just save as much of my paycheck every single month as I possibly can, uh, you know, 60, 70% of it. And then, uh, in, you know, invest it, right. That goes into the extreme earnings, which comes into the, uh, you know, the style of investing that I do is the quantitative investing, which is yields higher returns historically. Uh, so I take an extreme form of investing, uh, but also, the even the other side is you know of earnings as income right from your from your day job and i suppose my take on the extreme income side is of course running a startup right which is a, a massive risk by the way it's no it's in no way like guaranteed that i will have any business success whatsoever i've just kind of crossed my fingers and doing the best possible thing i can at every step but it's more extreme side to it and then the final equation then is the is the lifestyle part of, of that triangle right which when I went and said to colleagues and friends years ago that, oh, I think I'm going to start a startup and start a business, uh, they warned me and they said, uh, be really careful because if you do that, you're not going to have a life. It's going to be all consuming. There's going to be nothing else you know, that you will be able to do. And, and I've made it my life mission to make that the exact opposite <laughs> and to not take that advice on board. I love that. Some of the best advice is the advice you don't have to listen to. So. <laughs> Well, that's great. And, and I agree. I mean, obviously what you're doing is, is very extreme by, you know, traditional standards. Um, but the key is you're enjoying it and you're building, um, a life that you enjoy today and you've got goals for tomorrow. So, and I have no doubt by the way, that, that you'll find business success, whether with a keto or, or something else that you come up with just from, from our limited discussion here today. Thank you, James. Appreciate that. And for the final question, and you're a young guy, so, um, you know, this answer will change over time, I'm sure. But if you could go back, you know, maybe 10 years or, or so and give yourself a piece of advice um, about, you know, business or life or, or whatever, what, what do you think you would tell yourself? What a great question. Um, I think ultimately one of the biggest epiphanies i've had recently is that most things in life are a game um if it's not for survival's sake it's a game like if it's not a matter of life or death it's a game and once you realize that everything in life is a game it's incredibly calming and relaxing there's no need for stress there's no need for anxiety because it's a game and there's no need to be worrying what other people are going to do there's no need to have that increased heart rate because it's a game so I think I would have said that to myself and really tried to reinforce that concept that most things in our life are not worth the energy expenditure that we give to them emotionally because most things in life are a game. I love it. <laughs> there you go. And I agree. Well, this has been truly, Shane, delightful. Um, I poured myself, I don't know if you caught that, a second game. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how much I like. It's been a little while since I've had Guinness. I get so so into the the bourbon and cocktails over here in Kentucky that I, I forget to uh, grab a Guinness every now and again. Don't forget so, the Irish uh, roots, even though yours are Italian. Though, pretend we're that's a, <laughs> Exactly. So... But I, I really enjoyed it. You're such a thoughtful uh, person. I have no doubt that Aikido um, will meet whatever goals you have for it. And um, just
just really enjoyed the conversation. I think we, we touched on a lot of things there. So a lot to chew on. I'm sure I'll um, think of some things and smack myself for not asking you questions that I missed opportunities. James, it's all about covering and being interested in as many things as you possibly can. I suppose I'll leave you with the fact that I have tattooed on my leg, the jack of all trades. Um, and that's because I'm a really big believer that we just try everything, dip your toe in everything, be interested in lots of different things, be a polymath, you know, like just try everything. Um, and so I think that was definitely the theme certainly of today's discussion. And James has been beyond a pleasure and really enjoyed chatting with you. You are a Renaissance man, sir. (laughs) Cheers. Well, stay warm and, uh, we'll chat hopefully again some other time because I'll have some follow-up, no doubt. Awesome. Talk soon, James. Take it easy. Thanks, Shane. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, man. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Shane is a very interesting guy, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. The endless parallels between investing and life never cease to amaze me. I hope you'll subscribe to or follow Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. We've got more guests lined up who are willing to share their lessons on building wealth investing, and working towards those things in life that make them happy. Until next time, cheers.